Well, if you have been with us the last few weeks, you hopefully are aware that uh, we are in the Christian calendar. We are in a season uh, that's called Advent. And Advent just means coming. Uh, it's a time where we, uh, every year, observe, focus in on uh, the birth of Christ, his first coming, and look forward to his return with his second coming. We look back and consider the expectation of Israel for the Messiah. They're waiting for the Savior to be born. And then we look forward and let the story conjure in us a similar experience of, of longing and of waiting. Now, traditionally during this season, this time, uh, the church focuses on four themes. Hope, peace, joy, and love. As this is our third week this morning, uh, the students and Dave got us going. We're talking about joy. It's all about joy. We're going to be in Luke 2. But kids, I need your help uh, as we get started to set the stage. So kids, look up at me for a second. How many of you at home, you can, you can raise your hand, how many of you at home have a nativity set or a nativity scene? It's, it's, it's the manger scene, okay? If you have one of those, raise your hand. Okay, now I need your help. Tell me, you can shout out, what are some of the, the little figurines or the characters that are in your nativity set? Who's there? The angel, yes, who else? The wise men, yeah, who else is there? There's some shepherds there, maybe. Who else? Mary. Mary, thank you. Baby Jesus is there. Hopefully Joseph is there. What kind of animals are in your nativity set? There's a donkey. There's a sheep. Awesome. Yeah. That's so good. Now, now kids, kids, hang in with me. Each of those characters, they matter to the story. They're, They're important to the story. You know, Mary and Joseph, without the mother there'd be no baby. So you got to have Mary and Joseph. They're central. Okay. They represent, they show the miraculous birth. The animals are there. Maybe shepherds are there. If you have a manger to show the humble setting, it's not a palace. He wasn't born into this amazing castle. No, he was born in a barn. It's, it's, it's humble. The wise men are there because there's this surprising fact that it's a royal baby. This is a king that's been born. That's going to be worshiped. And the angel, our angel, like, plops on top of the barn. I don't think the angel stood on the barn, but, you know, the, the scene gets, gets the point of it. The angel is so important not only because he's central to the storyline itself, but also because it points to this big thing that God is doing. And the angel points to how, it helps us understand how our joy comes. So with that, um, we are going to be in Luke chapter 2. I before I get started, this, there's no awkward time to put, or there's no good time to put this in the sermon, so I'm just going to do it now. This is an excellent book I would recommend to you. Um, if joy is hard, if you're sitting here going, I can't believe we have to think about joy for the next few minutes, this is a book by a guy named John Piper. It's called When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. This was an important book in my life when I was kind of in a dark night of the soul season. And if that's you and you need something to encourage you, how, how to get a hold of joy, I'd encourage you to grab a hold of this book, When I Don't Desire God, How to Fight for Joy. Excellent book for you. All right, with that, we're in Luke chapter 2. Let me read, uh, and then we will dive into this. Let's see if I can read this. Luke chapter 2. We're going to be studying verses 8 uh, to 20, but I'm going to start reading in verse 1 this morning. So Luke chapter 2, starting with verse 1. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. 
And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger, laid him in a manger because there was no place for him in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up all these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Wow. Let me pray. Father God, as we open your word now, we ask that you would help us to see in your word wondrous things. Would we grow in our knowledge of you, and would we live in the joy that you offer? I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right. Well, we are talking about joy this morning. I've got three points for us. Uh, here's our outline. We're going to talk about longing for joy from verses 8 and 9. We're going to talk about inbreaking joy, verses 10 to 14. And lastly, glory-filled joy, verses 15 to 20. So let's dive in. Longing for joy, verses 8 and 9. We need to go back uh, to, to try to understand the big picture of what they were longing for to help us better understand our own longing. In some sense, all of the longings of the Advent season are a longing for glory. Specifically, God's glory, his presence. So if we go all the way back, Genesis 1, God creates everything, and it's good. It's so good. God's people are in God's place with God's presence and rule with him as king. It's perfect. It's paradise, peace, joy, love everywhere. They beheld God's glory. They were unashamed. It was amazing. But then as the story goes, and in chapter 3 of Genesis, we get the fall. Sin enters the world. Adam and Eve, they, they reject God's rule, and they lose everything else. When they sinned, they were removed from God's place, separated from God's presence, his glory. And an angel with a big flaming sword kind of guards the way so they can't get back in. And then things spiral out of control for eight chapters, getting worse and worse and worse, until finally chapter 12, Genesis 12, God starts his rescue plan. This rescue plan, which begins in Genesis 12, runs throughout the whole Bible, through the Gospels, all the way to the end of Revelation. God is going to make a people out of Abraham and put them in a place where he will be their God and they can enjoy his presence and his rule and they will get the glory again. This will restore their, their harmony with each other and with creation. The rest of the Old Testament is about this nation wrestling with being God's people 
struggling to get into God's place, the promised land. And once there, submitting to God's rule so they can have God's presence, his glory. Now, there seemed to be a high point, if you remember, with David and Solomon. It's the height of Israel's kingdom. They even build the temple, and God's glory comes down, fills the temple. It's amazing. But then it all comes crashing down with the exile. The people, again, turn from God, and they lose it all. God's people were ripped from God's place. And the temple, the site of God's presence, was destroyed. No more glory, no more peace, no more joy. The prophet Joel envisions this destruction through the exile. And he says that gladness has dried up from the children of men. That joy was cut off from the house of the Lord. Maybe you remember our studies in Daniel last spring. You know, in the exile, Israel's hopes were dashed. As readers of the Bible, if, if you're reading, you know, cover to cover, you get to the exile and it causes you to wonder, what? So, so is it over? Was this whole thing a tragedy? Is God finished with his people? Well, we know the answer is no. And, and through the prophets, we get both explanations for this judgment of exile, but also renewed hopes. Our students this morning, they read for us one of these promises in Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. The glory will return. And if you read the prophets, the hope and the promises, they swell. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. The promises grow to, to cosmic proportions. They become about more than just the land in particular. It's about more than just a specific land of Israel. No, God's rule and reign is going gonna, gonna to extend over the whole earth. The nations will stream in to be blessed. God will put his spirit in his people. Everything restored on a new heavens and a new earth. The hopes are huge. They're massive. So when the people return to Jerusalem from exile, and they rebuild the wall, and they rebuild the temple, you know, some of those promises are fulfilled, but it's kind of paltry and pathetic. Their expectations were way bigger. So they're left with a sense of anticipation, the sense of longing and hope for what is coming. They still longed for glory. And then they got 400 years of silence. No prophets, no visions, no words of the Lord for 400 long years. 400 years of longing until an angel comes to a young girl announcing a baby to be born. Chapter 2 of Luke opens with, with Luke giving us kind of the, the sober facts about the, the dire situation that the people were in. He starts off, he says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world was to be registered. Okay, they're occupied by Rome. This emperor is demanding a census. The government issued a go-home order. There was a census, so they had to go to their ancestral city to be counted. Talk about government overreach. No matter where you were at your own expense, this emperor 2,500 miles away demands that you have to pack up and go home to be counted. Things were not as they were supposed to be. They had returned from exile, but they knew they weren't home. They longed for joy. You know, they lived in what was supposed to be God's place, and they were God's people, right? But where was God's presence? Where was his rule? Where was the joy and the peace and the love that was supposed to abound? Where was the glory? They were longing for joy. But then, then in verse 9, an angel of the Lord appeared, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. 
This week I was reading The Best Christmas Pageant Ever. Have you read that little book? I'm reading it to my kids. It was so fun. Get it from the library, read it to your kids. It's great. Uh, but little Gladys Herdman envisions the scene like a comic book. Into the dark of night. Shazam! You know, the angel shows up. It's dramatic and shocking. The glory of God is back. His presence is coming once again to his people. They were longing for this moment for so long to know, to know that God had not abandoned them, to know that joy was possible. And do you know, I don't think it's very hard for many of us to envision their longing, to get into our heads and our hearts what they were feeling. Because we hunger and yearn and are longing for joy too. And last week, Kevin threw out the question, you know, what are we feeling right now? And the answers were sobering. Frustration, grief, exhaustion, sadness, discouragement, unconnectedness, disappointment. And that last one is profound, isn't it, for many of us? 2020, the year of disappointment. We long for joy. I long for joy. Now, this is an interesting year Because for decades, our culture has advertised and sold us on a counterfeit Advent celebration. You know, think about the Christmas that we see in movies, in television, the Hallmark Christmas, the Christmas of consumerism. All of it, it tries to sell us our Advent themes, hope, peace, joy, love, but cheap knockoff versions. So they try to sell hope, you know, you've seen it. In the movies, the commercials, that feeling you get when you, you open the lid of the box and you look into your present and see what's there. Hope. Hope for a puppy. Hope for a Sega Genesis. Hope for, you know, a new car in the driveway or a cheap piece of plastic that'll break by New Year's. Hope. The counterfeit Christmas, it sells us peace. You've seen it in the commercials, in the movies. Everyone's sitting around the table at peace with one another. It's this perfect Norman Rockwell scene. They try to sell us joy, Right? You know, cookies, cookies, gifts, sentimentality, decorations. You know, you got your peppermint jojas, your garland, joy. You know, we hear it on the radio. You will get a sentimental feeling when you hear voices singing, let's be jolly. How? Oh, deck the halls with boughs of holly. Just decorate. You can have that jolliness, that joy. We're sold love. There's a whole genre of Christmas rom-com that exists, okay? Hallmark Channel's full of it. You can get it other places, too. We have the Christmas family movie, trying to get that sense of love, right? Or, you know, alternatively in commercials, true love is waking up to a brand-new Mercedes in the driveway with a giant red bow. My brother sent me a meme this week that said, Ah, yes, it's that time of year where people in commercials buy cars without telling their spouses, like complete psychopaths. And I thought, yeah, that's just about right. But here's the thing. We buy this counterfeit advent. We buy it. Not because we think it'll actually deliver, but because the longing for these things rings true. You know, maybe I can't get what I see in the movie, but at least I'll enjoy the feeling for 90 minutes. You know, I know the joy of overeating will quickly turn into the agony of indigestion, but for those 30 minutes, I can hope, right? You know, to riff off of C.S. Lewis, We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with eggnog and toffee, consumerism and sentimentality when infinite joy is offered us in Christ. Now this year is interesting because the emptiness of what culture has sold us, it's kind of being felt already, right? And we all kind of wonder, what will a COVID Christmas even look like? It's particularly hard to sell these things right now. 
But all of this points to the fact that we long for the real Advent, for Emmanuel, for God with us, for glory. Not the Christmas of Hollywood or Hallmark, but the Christmas of Bethlehem. Our hearts yearn to be God's people, in God's place, rejoicing in and enjoying God's presence and rule in our lives. We long for joy. We long for God. So Bernard of Clairvaux, writing around 1100 AD, wrote this beautiful hymn. Jesus, thou joy of loving hearts, thou fount of life, thou light of men, from the best bliss that earth imparts, we turn unfilled to thee again. 600 years earlier, Augustine, in 500 AD, around there, in his confessions, he famously said, because you've made us for yourself, O Lord, our hearts are restless until they find their rest in thee. 500 years before that, this guy named Jesus taught that God is the gospel. He is the thing we get. Jesus said that the kingdom of God, well, it's like a treasure in a field or a pearl of great price that, that in your joy you would sell everything to get it. We have a longing for God, for joy in his presence, for glory. Now let's get back to our scene for a second. An angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them. But we're told that the shepherds were filled with great fear. Why? We long for God's glory, but our sin can't abide it. The glory will burn us up. I mean, think about every appearance of God or the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament. All of all, almost all of them result in the human just terrified in the presence of God. His glory is frightening. You know, even Moses on Mount Sinai, he's kind of gotten used to God's presence a little bit. He's like, show me your glory. And God says, yeah, you can't handle it. Let me hide you in a rock here. I'll put my hand over you and I'll pass by. And then maybe you can look at my back. You know, the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, it it was a, a way that God made for his glory to enter the tabernacle but they had to stay back. There's, there's a tent and there's curtains and there's all these sacrifices they have to do to get in. And, and only a high priest once a year could get close. And if his glory ever broke out, well, it, it burned people up. It was crazy. See, part of the drama of the Old Testament is wondering how God's glory can exist with sinful people without destroying them. So this tension, or there is this tension, The glory is back. How can the shepherds, how can we have joy instead of fear? And this brings us to our second point. From longing for joy to in-breaking joy, verses 10 to 14. We need to not only see the angels, but to hear them as well. Look at verses 10 to 14. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Great fear can give way to great joy. Now, the center of the angel's message is the good news, gospel news. You don't need to fear. Instead, you can rejoice at the glory and presence of God. Why? For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. They don't need to fear because God is making a way. The long-awaited Messiah, the Christ, God himself, will be a Savior. He will deal with their sins and our sins so that we can delight again in the glory of God, so that we can rejoice instead of fear. Joy was breaking into their world, for unto us a child is born. I have some friends several years ago who, uh, in their first year of marriage, they got married in August, sent out Christmas cards in uh, December, and decided to put that verse on there, unto us a child is born. 
And many people thought it was a birth announcement. It wasn't. Um, it was awesome. But, friends, this is the amazing reality announced by the angels. In our waiting, in our longing, in our darkness, joy breaks in. Like an angel in a dark field to a bunch of shepherds, God's word can come to us and shock us, make us alert, awake, maybe a little scared. Is it true? Is it possible? Hope? Peace? Joy? Love? Can they really be possible? Has joy broken into our world? To my life? You know, the scene is amazing to me in the way it just bounces back and forth between the earthy grittiness of the real world and the supernatural giddiness of heaven. You know, dirty shepherds on a hillside, an angel of the Lord in glory, a child of poverty born in a barn and laid in a feeding trough, and then the heavenly army singing as a shining chorus, glory to God in the highest. Or as the Latin says, gloria in excelsis Deo. Okay? Many people sing that hymn every year and wonder what the heck that means. It means glory to God in the highest. Back and forth, back and forth. We're left blinking, thinking, what just happened? The shepherds were not expecting it, but joy broke into their world, to the real world, to change everything. As the words of O Holy Night say, Long lay the world in sin and error pining till he appeared and the soul felt its worth. A thrill of hope. The weary world rejoices for yonder breaks a new and glorious morn. Now many, many modern people today like Jesus. You know, primarily as, as a moral teacher, but they get squeamish with all the miracles and all the supernatural stuff. But that's the central to the message of Christmas, that the supernatural is breaking into the natural, that the creator is entering creation, that God is becoming man. You know, there are many people, they want Christmas without the virgin birth, as if that's the most outlandish part of the story. It's not. No, the crazy part is not that God can miraculously put a baby in a womb. Okay, there's plenty of stories in the Old Testament like that. The miraculous part is that it was God that was in the womb. It's wild. It's crazy. It's amazing. The incarnation is the big miracle. God becoming flesh. If you can accept that, this is kind of crass, but if you can accept that, the rest of the miracles are just party tricks. If God can become man, anything is possible. No miracle is out of bounds. The angel of the Lord came and announced the birth of a baby that was the Lord, Christ the Lord. The supernatural was breaking in, and with it, joy. And Jesus' life was marked by joy. His first miracle was at a wedding where he made wine flow at a party. I mean, you can allegorize, you can spiritualize all you want, but at the heart of that miracle is just a joyous celebration. Jesus was about joy. His miracles all dripped with joy. The blind saw, the deaf heard, the lame walked, the dead came back to life. Oh, what joy! Jesus came making joy possible, making joy abound, making a way for glory, not with fear, but instead rejoicing. But think with me. The news of joy breaking into our world with a new king was not good news to everyone. Imagine for a minute, imagine with me a sci-fi movie. Okay, instead of an angel, imagine an alien messenger comes from the heavens with an announcement for the world. Rejoice, earthlings. 
Unto you has come a new king, and the government shall be upon his shoulders. He shall rule the whole world, and you have to call him Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. What happens in that movie? Well, the Avengers show up to fight Thanos, right? They don't welcome him with open arms. And indeed, when Christ the king comes, when the newborn king arrived, the kings of this world were threatened. At Jesus' birth, there was Herod trying to kill all the babies in the land to stop him. At his death, Pilate was torturing him to placate the people. And it's not just kings that were threatened. Even the religious rejected him, incited the crowds to cry out, Crucify! And in an astonishing turn of events, we find out that this was the plan all, all along. This baby king was born to die. Our joy was made possible because our king was a savior, the Christ. He went to the cross for our sins. He went to the grave to die our death. He took the exile so that we can get the glory. We are made his people in his place, given his presence through the death of Christ. And the descent to the grave started with his descent into a womb to be born in a barn. The good news of the angel is profound. There is so much truth packed into that one sentence. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. John Piper summarizes the gospel preached by the angel in this way. He says, on a day in real history, in a city, in a real world, the Savior to take away all our guilt, the Christ to fulfill all our hopes, the Lord to defeat all our enemies, and make us safe and satisfied forever. Joy broke in to make it possible to be God's people, in God's place, enjoying God's presence and rule in our lives. All right, we've seen longing for joy, in breaking joy. Finally, our third point is glory-filled joy. The amazingly good news of Christ's first coming is that joy broke into our world, but we still look forward to the consummation of all things. At his second coming, we are still waiting for God's glory to cover the earth like the waters cover the sea. And because we still wait, we have to acknowledge that things are not yet what they should be or will be. For those who don't yet know Christ, their longing is different. The world is still in sin and error, pining. But the Christian faces the difficulty of life differently. Rather than despair, we have joy in the midst of our waiting. And the shepherds, they help us see how this works. The shepherds, they left the hillside. They ran into town to see this thing that had happened. They left the joyous song of the angels and ran to see the gritty reality of a newborn king in a barn. But they then become messengers of that good news. They made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child, and they glorified and praised God for all that they heard. They saw joy break in, and they left with joy breaking out. But here's the thing. In one sense, their 400-year wait was over, but in another sense, they would still have to wait. You know, 30-ish years for this baby to grow up and be what the angels promised he would be. So they modeled for us life between Christ's first and second coming. We are changed, but we still wait for the consummation of all things. We have a taste. Joy has broken in, but we still wait. And as we do, joy can break out in praise to God in anticipation of what is yet to come. Now this fall, uh, we studied 1 Peter. 
And he, he describes in his letter what life between Christ's first and second coming looks like. I love, Dave read it this morning for us. First Peter chapter 1. Peter says that we are born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In this, the new birth and the living hope waiting for his return. In this we rejoice, though now for a little while. We have been grieved by various trials. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. See, we still wait. We still long for the cosmic hopes to be realized, but we wait in a different way than before because we get to taste, we get to delight in, to enjoy God now, even now, as we wait. I like the way that Frederick Buechner puts it. He says, joy does not happen in a world where everything is sweetness and light. It's not Disneyland where everything is kept spotless and all the garbage is trundled away through underground passages beneath the sunny streets. On the contrary, the world where this joy happens is as full of darkness as our own world. And that is why when it happens, it is as poignant as grief and can bring tears to our eyes. See, joy is not a fake smile or pretending like everything is okay. The prophet Habakkuk foresaw the destruction of the exile that was coming, and he he trembled at it. But he also had a glimmer of hope, of joy. He writes this, Habakkuk chapter 3, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor the fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. If you're a nerd like me, you'll be familiar with The Lord of the Rings. Um, and in it, I, I think Tolkien might have written part of it with, with Habakkuk in mind. I don't have any guaranteed proof of this. But in The Return of the King, the third book, uh, Mordor is on the attack, trying to destroy the kingdom of men at Minas Tirith. It's dark and foreboding. It looks grim. And Pippin the Hobbit looks up at Gandalf and is shocked by what he sees. Tolkien writes this. He says, it's great. Pippin glanced in some wonder at the face now close beside his own. In the wizard's face, he saw at first only lines of care and sorrow. Yet as he looked more intently, he perceived that under all, there was a great joy, a fountain of mirth enough to set a kingdom laughing were it to gush forth. Tolkien, he saw his fair share of darkness in World War I and World War II. He grasped both the darkness but also the inexpressible joy that we can have in the midst of this world while we still wait. Do you know fellow believers like that? Those who, you know, though the world has engraved lines of care and sorrow on their face, they've seen their steady diet of trials, and yet underneath is an inexpressible and glory-filled joy. Do you know people like that? I do. They cause us to ask how? How do we get this joy? Well, the shepherds went back to life, but they did so glorifying and praising God. The joyous news of glory led to joyous praise and glorifying. You know, in our story, there's three responses to this inbreaking joy, to the arrival of the king, to the return of glory. One, you can shrink back in fear. Two, you can lash out and fight. Or three, you can draw near and bow in worship. The shepherds rejoiced and praised and got the joy. 
Or to put it differently, if you want to enjoy God, you need to rejoice in him. C.S. Lewis, in his reflections on the Psalms, talks about how he used to wrestle with all the places in Scripture that talk uh, or that, that command us to praise God. He says it felt funny or vain, you know, of God to demand his own praise. But then he came to realize that it was in the process of being worshipped that God communicates his presence to his people. Lewis says that praise does not merely express our joy, but it actually completes our enjoyment. This is true in all of life. It is its appointed consummation. Think for a minute of having just an amazing meal and taking a bite and saying, oh, <laughs> this is good. You know, the praise completes your joy in that thing. So Lewis writes, he says, fully to enjoy is to glorify. In commanding us to glorify him, God is inviting us to enjoy him. To get the joy, you need to bow to the king. To have joy and not fear, you need to receive the salvation offered. To enjoy, you need to rejoice. And when we behold this newborn king, when we see and hear what the shepherds saw and heard, that on a day in real history, in a city, in the real world, the Savior was born to take away all our guilt, the Christ to fulfill all our hopes, the Lord God himself has come to satisfy us with his presence forever. When we see and hear and taste the goodness of the gospel, well then we are filled with inexpressible joy, even in the midst of the darkness of our day-to-day lives. When we receive that joy that has broken into our world and our lives, it can then break out of us in praise and invitation. We can sing, as we sang this morning, joy to the world. The Lord is come. Let earth receive her king.